morning, we are going to be in Acts 2. Acts 2 is um, one of those big events that we talked about a few weeks ago in Acts where God does something amazing. God does something incredible. God does something uh, stupendous, and, and it kind of blows our minds uh, because that's the kind of God that we have. He's big and awesome and powerful. And so we have this event that happens in Acts 2. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, um, and then we can, we can kind of talk through it. So uh, starting in Acts, Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the event known as Pentecost. Now for some of you, you might not know this, Pentecost actually predates this event. Pentecost is not tied to the Holy Spirit showing up. It actually is a celebration. It means 50, Pente, 50. It's 50 days after Passover. It is this festival of weeks, the celebration of the harvest festival. And so many stayed in Jerusalem or didn't travel very far out because they knew they were coming back for this festival. And so here we are, 50 days after Passover. So Jesus has been gone for over a month, month and a half at this point. Jesus has died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and the disciples and the rest of his followers, we saw last week about 120, have been looking around saying, now what do we do? Now how do we move forward? And here we see how they move forward. And they move forward by trusting what Christ had told them before he left. He said, wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere because the helper is coming. The spirit is coming. And then once the Holy Spirit shows up, then you can go and be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you need to wait. And so the waiting is finally over. Here we are in the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit shows up. And we see three things happen in this event. We see a sound, a sight, and an ability. It says there in verse 2, there was a sound. It is like a mighty wind, like a storm blowing through. You'll see uh, words like this often in the New Testament, especially when we're talking about things that go beyond the norm, things that go into the spiritual world. It was a sound like a mighty wind. Was it a mighty wind? We don't know. But Luke says, and ever after he asked everybody who was around, they said, All the only way I can describe it is it was like a mighty wind. It was like a storm blowing through this house. Not exactly a wind, but that's what it sounded like. That's what it reminded me of. And it was sudden. God moves when God wants to move. He is not bound by our time constraints. He is not bound by our restraints in any way. Sometimes we see and expect him to move in one way, and he does something completely different. We see also that this sound came from heaven. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It was from heaven because the Holy Spirit is God. God dwells in heaven, and so it makes sense that the Holy Spirit is going to come from heaven because that's where he was, that's where he dwells. And it is a mighty, mighty wind because God moves in power. He showed up in a tangible, experiential, observable way on this day. And along with this sound like a mighty wind, we have a sight we see in verse 3. Divided tongues of fire appeared, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Divided tongues of fire. Again, it's the most earthly way 
that whoever was giving this information to Luke could explain it. We know in Luke 3, John the Baptist spoke about Jesus bringing a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. In the Old Testament, God uses fire often to, to denote his presence. Places like when they're journeying through the wilderness at night, he showed up ahead of them in a pillar of fire as he led them to the promised land, or the burning bush with Moses, the bushes on fire. It, was, it denotes God's presence and his power. There's also the regular use of fire in relation to purification. Right? We hear often the phrase, the refiner's fire. It burns off the impurities of gold and silver, leaving the purest, strongest version of those elements. Throughout the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God is referred to, it's usually in relation to God's people as a whole. The Spirit was with Israel. The Spirit was moving and leading Israel. It was them as a collective. It was them as God's collected people, as the nation of Israel. Though occasionally the Spirit would descend on individuals, it was always temporary. Here now, though, these tongues of fire, it says they rested or they sat. It's the idea of completion when... Uh, in the other places in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is sitting on the throne because there is completion. The work has been done. The Holy Spirit here sits and rests. There is a completion of what was promised by Christ. And this completion now sets with the Holy Spirit descending on each individual, no longer just the collective unit of, na of the nation of Israel, but all individuals. It rests on each individual who places their faith in Christ. These outward events, the sound, the sight, will get to the ability to speak languages. They are amazing. They are powerful images of how God can move. But I said it a few weeks ago, and I'll continue to remind us, they are not the main point. These things were physical evidence for the believers that the spirit which Christ had promised had arrived. It was unmistakable that this things that things were different now, right? Like I said, this is Pentecost. We are fifty days fifty days after the Passover. Jesus was around for forty days. We know after he rose from the dead, it says he stuck around for forty days, appearing in different ways in different places. So now we've been ten days, right? Simple math: we're ten days without any Jesus. But the last thing he said to the disciples was, "I'm going to send you a spirit. So just wait in Jerusalem." And then he goes, and then there's nothing for 10 days. And the disciples keep waking up. Because Jesus didn't tell them when the Spirit was coming. So for 10 days, they woke up, and they had to have that question amongst themselves, right? Is today the day? Do I, do I have any Hey, Peter, do I look different to you? Right? How do we know if we have this power? How do we know if we have this Spirit? What, what, what's going to be different? Jesus didn't give us a whole lot of indication here. This event is the clear proof of the power of God, the Spirit of God coming down from heaven and being in and among them. There was no confusion as to whether or not the Spirit was on the move. The Spirit has arrived. Now, some of you might hear that and say, well, why doesn't he do that today? Why is it then when we as individuals, when we become Christians and we get filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, why don't we have a mighty wind and tongues of fire and all of this when we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the same could be said of many others in the book of Acts that didn't receive that same kind of tangible moment that we'll see over and over. Many, many will come to know faith, will come to put their faith 
in the gospel, and we don't see this same kind of result. This is a one-off, an intentional display of, for the filling of ministry for the disciples. It's similar to Jesus' baptism by John, which involved the audible word of the Father and the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. It was tangible. It was for a specific purpose to equip and empower these men to go and lead this ministry. This here is the stamp of approval and readiness for the ministry, both for the apostles to stop wondering if they got the Spirit, and for those who saw and heard them, that clearly something new had happened, and clearly something new was happening. And so that brings us to the ability. It's the thing most people cling to, the thing that most of this chapter is about, the fact that they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, it says in verse 4. A multitude of people from all over the place heard them speaking in their own different languages. And so we see this big sound comes upon the house, and people come to see what's going on, and they hear them proclaiming, it says in verse 11, that they, what they were saying as they spoke in these other languages was the mighty works of God. I think it's interesting, the only comment from outsiders has to do with the speaking in tongues thing. Right? Either when this group shows up and they hear them speaking in tongues, they either didn't see or didn't care about the divided tongues of fire over their heads. That would have been the thing I focused on. Like, cool, I don't, like, I don't understand how you're speaking that language, but can we talk about the flaming fire that's just floating? No, we're not going to talk about that. Okay, fine. But they're amazed and astonished is what it says. This word astonished, we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. We talked about it on Easter a few weeks ago. It is dumbfounded. It is there's no space in my brain for the situation that is happening here. I don't know how to respond. It's typical of interactions with Jesus and his teachings and his miracles, and so it makes sense that this would happen here with the Holy Spirit. It says they were amazed and astonished in verse 7 and 8. But they were amazed and astonished because not only were they hearing everything in their own languages, but the men speaking it were Galileans. See, people from Galilee had a very specific accent and dialect when they spoke. It was oftentimes hard to understand them. Remember when Peter is warming himself by the fire during Jesus' trial, it is his accent, it is his dialect that gives him away. When someone comes and says, aren't you one of those that were with Jesus? I can tell from the way you speak, you speak like a Galilean. It's much like when those of us who are born and raised in Chicago leave the city, we're told that we talk funny. I don't hear it. I think everyone else is as well. But apparently we talk funny. It was not a particularly pretty or sweet way of speaking, but it was very easy to understand that person was from Galilee. See, what we have here is the disciples are speaking and proclaiming the mighty works of God, and everybody in this crowd are hearing it in different languages. What we have here is a twofold phenomenon. The apostles are speaking in other tongues. We see that in verse 4. But then also those who showed up could hear these things in their own languages. The crowd is amazed because of the large variety of people who are there, suggesting that there was a, a wide variety of languages represented beyond just Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, which would have been the big three that most people spoke. Beyond that, there are many dialects represented. And so I got a visual for you. Can we get the, the map up, Peter? There we go. So we have Jerusalem, and then in those verses where it lists out all of the different cities in verses 9 and 10 and 11, that's where all the different cities come from. Cyrene, Crete, Asia, 
Cappadocia, Pontus, Mesopotamia, all over the place. And they are all now focused down into Jerusalem because they're there either sticking around after the Passover or they're there for Pentecost. And so we have people from all over the place, which again represents and says, this is something more than just the three major languages. This is a lot of different dialects. This is a lot of different ways of speaking. And all of them could understand what the disciples were saying because they heard it in their native tongue, their natural voice, the thing they grew up speaking. I have a quote from uh, John Stott, and I'm just going to give it to you. It should be on the screen. Um, I have a quote from John Stott. It's kind of long, but I want to read it for you anyway because it's really good. Um, Nothing could have demonstrated more clearly than this, the multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom of God. Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have, been, have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human language was confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Besides, at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. This was something new. This was, once again, Jesus giving a window, giving a little bit of a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven. When the Holy Spirit shows up and they're speaking these languages, there is unity amongst everyone. Everyone could hear. Everyone could understand. There's a unity, and it gives us this little bit of window that says one day there will be no division. One day it won't matter, Greek, Jew, slave, free. It doesn't matter. All of that stuff will be wiped away because it will all be united under the banner of the gospel. And so we see in verse 12, as this big, amazing event is happening, in verse 12, someone asks, they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they're just filled with new wine. There's always going to be people who want to poke fun, who don't understand, who are overwhelmed by a situation, and rather than step in, rather than press in to try and understand, to try and have their worldview be challenged, instead they'll just stand on the sidelines and poke fun and retweet some mean comments. What does this mean? What do we do with this new reality that's standing before us? And once again, we have Peter standing up to be the spokesman and leader that God was making him to be. And Peter proceeds to preach really what is the first Christian sermon. And what he does is he preaches what he knows. We're going to read a little bit of it. I'm going to pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour, that's about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Real quick, early on into the sermon, Peter debunks this idea that they're just rambling, mumbling drunks. This is so much bigger than that. This is so much more intense than that. He says, again, it's 9 a.m. And secondly, what's happening is something more than just somebody being drunk and having some weird secret talent they didn't know about when they were sober. What was happening here was spoken of 500 years before by the prophet Joel. When the prophet says a day will come where God's spirit is going to be poured out, prophecy and visions and dreams, great wonders would happen. And this prophecy is a glimpse as to what we're going to see as we study the book of Acts. And all of it will ultimately lead and provide space and point people to what happens when he says in verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was true in the days of Joel, 500 B.C. It was true on this day at Peter, at Pentecost, and it is true, true still today. It is the name of Jesus who is the rock, the firm foundation, the solid ground, and the chief cornerstone. Peter could have stopped right there. He could have been like, that's enough for you. The Holy Spirit had miraculously showed up, observably been poured out, prophecy had been fulfilled, and an invitation to find salvation was offered. But he kept going because he wanted them to know, because he needed them to know, because everyone needs to know. Central to what all of Peter has to say to this crowd is Jesus. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, you know the works and wonders and signs that he did, how God moved through him. We don't have to rehash it. We don't have to bring it all back up because many of you already saw it, Peter says. Many of you experienced it firsthand. Jesus did these things in their midst. They knew about it. And he was delivered, handed over, and crucified. But his death was not a shock or bad luck when it comes to God. According, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereign work, even in the midst of evil, is always still at work. And Peter wants to make that known. Just because, but just because God is sovereign, just because he is in control of all things at all times, and he is, and he knows all things at all times, and he uses all things for his glory, that does not eliminate or minimize the responsibility and consequences connected to evil being done. And so we see in verse 23, Peter looks this crowd in the eye, and though it is not directed to any one specific person, I think each specific person can take ownership when Peter says, you crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, we're going to see here in a minute that this crowd is 3,000 plus. Just two months prior to this event, Peter couldn't stand up to the accusations of a teenage servant girl in a courtyard that had no consequence about whether or not he was a disciple of Jesus. And now here he stands in front of this crowd of thousands declaring unprompted and unprepared a full and complete declaration and invitation into faith in Jesus. And he starts it with, you killed him. Lawless men, he says. It's a term Jews, <coughs> excuse me, Jews would often use for Gentiles. And the Romans clearly had their hands in Jesus' death. 
He was executed under their law on their cross. But the crowd he's preaching to here is going to be mostly, almost exclusively Jewish. And just because it was the Romans who actually put the nails into Jesus and let him die, that does not remove the scribes and Pharisees from their guilt, nor does it remove the guilt from the crowds who clamored for Barabbas to go free, nor does it remove the guilt of the sins of those in attendance or of you and of me. As Paul will say years later, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But he didn't stay dead. Because if he stayed dead, then we too are dead. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we too are stuck, helpless, and hopeless, and lost. But he says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up, removing the shackles of death because death doesn't have the power. Death doesn't get the final say. Jesus does. F.F. Bruce says, The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. See, this is totally a Mother's Day sermon. Peter goes on and he once again quotes the Old Testament. This time he quotes from Psalm 16, the Psalm of David. And like most psalms connected to David, it looks to the future, looks to the day of the Messiah, and Peter draws out that reality in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. He quotes this idea, this, this psalm, Psalm 16, where it talks about, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. David's clearly not talking about himself there, Peter says. He says, look, David died. We have his tomb. We can go visit it. So he's clearly not talking about himself in this psalm. He's clearly talking about somebody else. See, because among the many things that David was, he was a prophet, and God, cared, and God used and promised through David that a line of kings would stay on the throne forever. And David foresaw that day of the Messiah, and here in this psalm was writing about the resurrection of Jesus. Because we know that he was not abandoned to Hades, he was resurrected. Peter says to the crowd, you're all witnesses of it. Many of you saw Jesus risen, and all of them just witnessed the external result of the pouring out of the spirit of Jesus. Jesus' place of exaltation is shown in his followers, these disciples, these regular guys, these fishermen and tax collectors. These apostles now fulfilling prophecy and filled with the Holy Spirit, being able to do signs and wonders that nobody could have ever thought they would. What the crowd was seeing and hearing was the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out by Christ from his position of authority and power at the right hand of the Father. And so if the crowd wasn't tracking, if they weren't quite with Peter, he continues once again and he sends them back to the Old Testament one more time into Psalm 110. And he tells them when David wrote this one, he again wasn't talking about himself in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David didn't go to heaven. David wasn't sitting at the right hand of God. It's Jesus. See how in this very first sermon preached, Peter is doing what preachers have been trying to do and continue to do since then is that show people how over and over again God's word points us back to Jesus. 
Peter knew this. Peter understood this because Jesus told him as much, that all of Scripture points back to Christ. So here's Peter just playing really connected dots for the crowd. He said, you remember that psalm? You know that one that you have memorized, you've heard in the temple over and over again? Yeah, that one's about Jesus. Hey, you know that other one about the Lord said to my Lord, and it doesn't really make sense? Yeah, it's about Jesus. Over and over, you can go throughout the Old Testament and find those places and times, and it points us back. It gives us these shadows. It gives us these glimpses of who was to come, of Christ and his exalted self. Peter finally wraps up this sermon. Now, this isn't the whole thing, because this sermon is like two and a half minutes, and no preacher's gone two and a half minutes. It says later on that he spoke many more words and encouraged them with much more, but he, he sums this up in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Jesus that was strung up like a common criminal is in fact the Messiah and more than that, God. He says he is Christ and Lord. Lord can mean master. But for the Jewish, and for the Jewish people, there was this one name that was above every other name. It was the name of God. It was the name of Yahweh. It was a name so revered that when it showed up in scriptures, they didn't even pronounce it, but rather they would say the Almighty or the one above, or sometimes they would just say the Lord. But here, Peter's telling them that when the prophet Joel told you that you can call on the name of the Lord to be saved, that is fulfilled in and by the name of Jesus, who is both Lord and in Christ. Peter preaches this sermon, and we see in verse 37, when the people heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? How do we respond? What do we do now? That's a great way to respond to a sermon. When you hear God's word proclaimed, that should be in our hearts. What do we do now? How do we respond? Now what? How does this make things different? And what's the first thing Peter tells them? What's the first thing he tells them to do? He says it in verse 38. And Peter said to them, what? Repent. It's the same message that the prophets had been, the prophets had been preaching over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the same message that John preached in the wilderness. It's the same message that Jesus came preaching when he showed up. Repent. Turn away and go in a different direction. Once you do that, then be baptized. See, repentance must never be thought as something that we do before we can come back to God. Repentance describes what coming to God is because you can't turn towards God without turning away from something else, without turning away from that which he is against. That's what repentance is. The word literally means to go in the opposite direction. And so we turn away from our sin, from our rebellion, from our false gods that we convince ourselves are going to save us, and we turn to God for safety and saving and satisfaction. And so after repenting, what do we do? After running to God for forgiveness, what do we do? Verse 38, Peter says, be baptized. Now he's not saying that be baptized because that's how you get saved. Instead, it's repent, which leads to baptism and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It starts with turning to Jesus and finding that new life, new hope, new relationship with God, new relationship with others, new relationship with yourself, with creation. 
And all of that begins by turning away from the things that distract, turning away from the things that hurt, turning away from the things that keep you from the one who made you and knows you and loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. From there, be baptized, Peter says. Now look, baptism doesn't save you. It is in response to your salvation. It is a gift from God, much like we're going to take communion here in a few minutes. It is a tangible way for us to remember and identify with Christ in his death and resurrection. In the same way that Christ died and went into the tomb, in baptism you go underwater. We just read that death could not hold Christ. He was raised from the dead, defeating death itself along with the sin that leads to it. His resurrection is the seal of approval of his sacrifice and the declaration of his victory and sovereignty over all things. And so Jesus went into the tomb, but then he came out. In baptism, you go into the water and you come up. And what does water do? It washes things away. And so symbolically, the water is the perfect reminder for us that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Through his death and his resurrection, we have been washed and made new. Baptism is the public declaration of our allegiance and identity being connected with and wrapped up in the relationship with Jesus. And in pursuing Christ, in turning from sin, you find forgiveness for your sins for now and for all time. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what you have done, no matter what you're going to do, you can't outsin God's grace. There is always more to be had. There is always more forgiveness to be found. In turning from your sin, in turning to Christ, you are saved, you are forgiven, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The gift of the presence of God with you and in you. The gift of God's leading and guiding and directing presence with you. The gift of God's comfort. The gift of God's instruction. The gift of God's power. The gift of God's protection. This promise, this new life, this hope, it is for now and for your kids and for future generations, Peter says. No one is too far gone. No one is outside of the chance to be saved. Still today and for as long as till, until Christ wait, for as long as, as it takes until Christ returns, this promise of salvation, this gift being offered, God is calling you. He is extending grace to you and mercy and life to you if you are willing to put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are willing to admit your sin and rebellion against God, if you are willing to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place and choose to have Jesus be your Lord and Savior in your life. Peter lays out the truth of the gospel. The gospel does what it has always done. It cuts to the hearts of those present and they want to respond. So Peter gives them a very practical way to do so. Repent, believe, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. And we see how that plays out in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God moved in a mighty and real way on that day. The truth was preached and people heard and responded. This is revival. This is mass turning to God. 3,000 people. That's bigger than most cities at that time. This is the kind of thing that changes cities. It changes families for generations. It changes everything. 
This is monumental. This shapes much of what happens for the rest of this book and going forward. And so because it's such a big and massive event and so much good comes from it, we got to ask then, why doesn't God do this more? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit do this more? Why doesn't God act like this? Why don't we see these mass turnings to God like this? We do. It happens. Even relatively recent history is marked by multiple movements throughout it, leading to thousands coming to put their faith in Jesus in waves and droves like this. You can go read history and learn about the great awakenings of the early 17 and 1800s. Or the businessman revival of 1857 that started in New York City and swept through the country. And you can read about how the lunch hour, the noon hour in major cities, including Chicago, downtown was a ghost town. Why? Not because everybody was off getting a bite to eat, but because everybody left work and went to the churches and were praying and confessing sin and finding grace. Or how about 20 years later in the 1870s when D.L. Moody comes back to the States from being in Europe and revival spreads. And where does it start? In Chicago. And it goes throughout the country. Hundreds upon thousands are putting their faith in Christ. The early 1900s and the baseball player turned evangelist Billy Sunday, which is the coolest life story ever, preaching with vigor and urgency to Chicago about, hey, sober up and find Jesus. It's estimated that close to a million people professed faith in response to the ministry of Billy Sunday. And at the same time, on college campuses around the country, gospel is moving and changing and shaping their cultures. In the 1950s, you have Billy Graham, and he's filling up football stadiums in places like Los Angeles, not for a football game, not for a concert, but to proclaim the gospel. And people knew that was going to happen, right? They weren't tricked. It wasn't like, hey, come here, Elvis. Ha, psych, gospel. No, they knew what was coming, and they still showed up in droves, and they responded. And it changed generations of families forever. In 1950, you can read about prayer meetings that happened in Wheaton College, 40 minutes from here, where for multiple days, classes got shut down because students weren't showing up to their classes, not out of anger, not out of protest, but because they were in the chapel praying and confessing, and for the first time, many of them who grew up in church for the first time understanding the grace of God and were turning toward him. In the 1990s, you have the promise keepers filling up stadiums, and even today you have men like Greg Laurie preaching to hundreds and thousands at a time and seeing hundreds and thousands at a time putting their faith in Christ and responding to the offer of hope and life. God still moves. God still acts. I read a stat this morning that said in Africa, it is a, as of 2021, it is estimated that there are 6.8 million Christians in Africa right now. And by 2025, that number will be close to 8 million. Christianity is not on the decline. It's not going away anytime soon. God is still on the move. He still moves because he is the still same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we ask, how does this happen? How did 3,000 souls come to know Christ? Because Peter didn't wake up that day and think to himself, I'm going to preach to a thousand, couple thousand people and 3,000 of them are going to become Christians. He didn't prepare remarks. He didn't spend 15 to 20 hours prepping a sermon. He preached what he knew. He preached Jesus. He preached the Bible. He told people everything else is nonsense and failing. Turn to Jesus. Find life. Peter knew experientially he knew what it meant, what it cost, and what was gained by the following of Jesus. And so he told people what he knew. 
Peter's just a guy with no formal training. He just told people what he knew, and he let the Holy Spirit do what he does. That should be freeing to us. For those of us living in light of the Great Commission, as people who seek to proclaim Christ and become Christ-like, at CF, we want to be a lighthouse and shine the gospel and point people to Jesus. And to do that, we've got to actually open our mouths and make the invitation and have the conversation and invite people in. But it doesn't have to be more complicated than telling people what you know. You might say, I don't know a whole lot. Do you know Jesus is God? Do you know that he died for your sins? That salvation is given as a gift of grace by, through faith? Then you know more than enough. Start with what you know, because if you are a Christian, you know enough to point something, someone to the greatest decision they could ever make. And ultimately, it's not about you. It's about what the Holy Spirit does to them. Our job is to tell them what we know. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that illuminates and cultivates in each person the opportunity to respond to the truth of the gospel. So be faithful to the truth you know, and the Holy Spirit will do what he has always been doing and make things new. We see in verse 42 and to the end of the chapter, there was tangible results to what happened on this day of Pentecost. This wasn't just an emotional decision that and just kind of went away and just faltered. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They taught what Jesus taught them. They taught them that the Bible was all about Jesus. They taught the gospel, the good news that God came to earth and died for them. <clears throat> we see fellowship happening. To the point where people are selling their things and sharing their stuff with each other. They engaged in each other's lives. People went so far as to sell what they had, distribute the proceeds so that everyone had something. They took care of each other. To have this kind of fellowship, this kind of interaction and relationship, you have to be willing to share your life with others. To let others in and to be willing when others let you into their lives to not judge or to press or to not to judge them or to press too hard into them, but rather to show grace and be a person of love and hospitality when they need it most. It says they had meals together. To share a meal with someone in that day was important and intentional and intimate. It wasn't, hey, you want to take a ride, then let's go get some Wendy's. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as, because, you know, a quick ride to Wendy's can go a long way to a relationship as long as you choose to make that time build into a relationship. But they were intentional to have these intimate moments with each other. And they were devoted to prayer. They gathered to pray. They went to temple to pray. They spent time praising God on a regular, daily basis. The strength of your prayer life is a pretty good indicator of the strength of your relationship with God. And we'll continue to see these things play out as we move forward. But ultimately, the takeaway should be that what happened, it mattered, and it still matters. What happened in that house on that day, it changed lives. It altered history and has a residual effect still today of lives and Christians now. My guess is that if you are a Christian this morning, you didn't have as dramatic of an event happen to you as the day of Pentecost. But you have the Holy Spirit. He is with you and in you. The same power the same wisdom, the same instruction and guidance, all of it is available, available to you today. Do you live like that's true? Do you believe that that is true? P 
Peter didn't know the ins and outs, the nuanced theological topics of living in the Holy Spirit. He saw an opportunity, and he shared what he knew. And he trusted God's word. He trusted the truth that he knew. He trusted Jesus, and he called people to know and believe the gospel, to repent, be baptized, and find forgiveness and new life in the Holy Spirit. You can do the same. You can share what you know and trust the power of the Holy Spirit. And those who believed, their lives were changed. Their daily routines, their relationships, their bank accounts, their outlook on life was changed and affected by the gospel. They were not perfect, but they were intentional to care and engage with one another. When needs came up, they worked together to care for each other. They knew their lives had been changed by Jesus, and because of that, they allowed the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them so they could care for one another as well. My prayer is that we as a people of CF and really as the global church may be people who listen to the Holy Spirit and respond. That may, we may be a people who hear the word of God and respond, what should we do? And when we're given an answer by the Holy Spirit, I pray we are doers of the word and not just hearers for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to hear from you. God, you still move in mighty ways. But even in the mundane, even in the daily grind, you move in mighty ways, even when we aren't paying attention. God, for those who have put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean in and trust the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Help us to listen. Help us to respond. Help us to engage with the truth that you have given us in Scripture. Lord, when you put opportunities before us to glorify you, to share truth in a world of lies and falsehoods, God, help us to step into those. Help us to trust you are with us. Help us to trust in what you have already shown us and taught us. Help us to trust what we know, the goodness and grace and mercy and love that you have for us. God, there is a power that you have given to us. And that power is to be used to glorify you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do just that. As we live, as we work, as we are students, as we our neighbors, as we are in our families, with our friends, we would be leaning on and trusting the Holy Spirit's lead in our lives. God, you have showed us the Holy Spirit is with us. There are tangible ways for us to respond. So Lord, as we study your word, as we read your word, as we continue to read and study the book of Acts. Help us to continuously come back to that question. What should we do? How do we respond? And give us the boldness and the courage to do just that. And Lord, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, if anyone hasn't put their faith in you, that today is that day 
where the Holy Spirit would illuminate for them the reality that Jesus loves them and died for them. That he is the ultimate Lord of lords and King of kings, ruling and reigning, sovereign over all things. And that he wants to have a relationship with them. And that's possible by putting their faith and trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God, as we go into the world, help us to be the lights of the world that you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.